collectors, and other disreputable sinners. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he added, Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Then he added, Now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I have come to call, uh, for I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thank you, God, for the word you have given to us. How's everybody today? Who said awesome? That's great. That's great. Glad you're here this morning. Well, if you haven't heard already, we are a people who love God, love all people, and follow Jesus together. And you hear this, say this, say this probably week in and week out, multiple times in a service. You read it in many of our communications that we send out. But how does this look? What does this look like? How does a community, faith, community of faith live this out? Well, let me give you a few ways over the last couple of weeks. Most of them land in this week. And you can find these amongst your fellow believers here. We have a Jesus follower in our community who has been meeting with a friend faithfully, faithfully for weeks, months, who is in the midst of deconstructing their faith. Can I just tell you that this, this fellow follower sits with this person and listens to this person and prayerfully attends to her compassionately. You remember what we learned last week about the word compassion? Compassion is the conviction of Jesus in our hearts to do something with action. We step into love and we go, you know what? They can't do this alone. Now, this person is desirous and is praying that they, they rebuild their faith. But my guess, friends, as we consider loving God, loving all people, and following Jesus together, you have friends around you who are doing exactly the same thing. They had a faith at one time, and they're deconstructing their faith even as we speak, uh, knowingly or unknowingly, and they need a fellow follower to sit with them, to listen to them. They may not even need you to preach at them, if you know what I mean, but they need you to be their friend. Is that the mission that Jesus has called us to be about? That's, by the way, it's not rhetorical. Is it? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, this last week, Esterbrook, school right across the way, Ypsilanti schools, we've adopted them and they've adopted us. We love the reciprocal relationships. This means for us that we are uh, friends of the students, the staff, and at times the activities which arise uh, and take place. So we try to treat them to lunch, the staff to lunches, because they're attempting to create an atmosphere in their school so kids can learn, and an atmosphere where parents can then bring their children and be encouraged about that environment. And uh, I get it. Some of us are parents, and we're trying to navigate uh, schools and teachers and all of that. Uh, and we have students, but we come alongside and become friends for all of those. A few weeks ago, we were able to provide a lunch for them, the staff, when 
they, uh, when the opportunity arose. And this last week, I'm grateful to say that they had a field day and we, uh, we kind of sent this out on our Facebook page. Some of these things happened spontaneously uh, on a Facebook group and somebody stepped in to go help out with field day. Can I tell you, can I ask, and it's not rhetorical, I really want to hear you, is this the mission that Jesus has called us to be about? Yeah, it's to love God. Love all people and follow him together into the world in which we live when we have the space and place to do that. So it maybe you're interested in those spontaneous opportunities that we have to arise from time to time and social media is a place where you go. If it's not, that's okay and I would probably agree with you that it's okay not to be a part of it. But if it is, you need to be a part of the life and community group because that's where play people People we post and other people in that group post from time to time opportunities to love all people in these ways. So that's just one of those places. And you may not know uh, or you may not heard, and if you didn't, you're not reading or seeing, I'll just be honest, that we have been partnering with Aiden Milan to distribute food in Ypsilanti uh, through the school and here. And uh, we, we just want this to be an opportunity that we can be a see a felt need. I know one of our, one of our uh, fellow followers that's here this morning uh, really kind of put an encouragement out for the, it's called the pop-up pantry that they've created to be a part of that. And in this day in which we're struggling, some of us, our budgets are just tapped out. Can I just tell you, this is just one of those ways in which this, this agency is willing to partner with us and we're willing to partner with them to provide food for our friends in our neighborhood and maybe even for us. So I just ask you, you know, if you want to be a part of this, there's an opportunity to connect with them with the school for, for in the summertime, uh, but we're not sure exactly where because summer, summer changes the locations of where things are at, and they're trying to determine that. But if you would like to be a part of this distribution that's happening in our community for, our, for the people that we're neighbors with, just let us know on the connection card and then we'll let you know when it happens. And if you're available to help out with that, this is part of our mission. We're here to bring good, right? The old, there's a place in the Old Testament that tells us that we're supposed to bring, bring, pray for the peace of the city and bring flourishing to it. This is our call. So if you've been wondering, wait a second, I hear them say this week in and week out. What does this look like? Well, sometimes it looks like a communal effort. Sometimes it really is a call on us individually to have our own mission field, our own mission places and locations. And I am grateful to know that many of you have shared with me that where you're at. So that's beautiful. Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, that wasn't the message, by the way. That was just a promo, man. Just a promo. If you have your Bibles, open to Matthew 9. And if you do not have a Bible, the one in front of you is yours. Or if you don't like that one, we have them in, in the lobby, and our connection team, they'll be at the welcome table. They'll be willing to uh, give you a Bible back there. This one in the pew is an NIV. The one back there is an NLT. Uh, we like both of those. They read really well. Oh, by the way, if, you, if you're new to us this morning, you fill out a connection card, and you take it back to the welcome center, they'll make sure that you get a t-shirt that says, love, uh, live out love. It's Pretty generic, uh, doesn't matter where you, where you set on the idea, but most of us want to do that pretty well. So fill out your connection card, hand, uh, take it back there and wear that for Jesus, if not for us, okay? Matthew chapter 9, Matthew chapter 9. As Abigail read, it starts with this words, as Jesus went from there, 
In the NLT, as I believe she read, it tells you how he traveled. And I'm, I'm going to get caught up on some small stuff because I think sometimes the small stuff, you know, I, I, I get it. Some of us read the book, Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. But I'm not sure that's totally true all the time. And I think that there's a pace and a cadence that Jesus wishes to give to us and to deposit into our very beings that allows us to stay in tune with him and not tune with the culture around us. So it says, as Jesus went on from there, he, he doesn't tell us how he got around. We hop in our cars and we drive 50 or 60 miles an hour, which is fine. Now, whatever the speed limit's supposed to be, folks, uh, you drive that. But in their day, in their time, he walked everywhere he went. Now, I don't want to get hooked into this idea that we should walk everywhere we should go, but this is the point that I want to drive at. Jesus had a pace about him that allowed him to see the world around him in ways that I think we allow it to be blurred. I think that Jesus wants us to slow down just a little bit or reprioritize or do something so we see it. And he saw the world in ways that we didn't. So again, I'm not suggesting we walk everywhere, but probably walking would help some of us out a lot, just to be honest. But what I am suggesting, even by these entry words to this phrase, is that Jesus' pace is a pace that allows us to be a aware of the Holy Spirit's work not only in us, but around us. We believe in a God that's omniscient, that he's everywhere. Do we believe that? I do. I believe that God's everywhere, that he is already working before we arrive, wherever we're going. And if that's the case, then we have to be alert to what God is wanting us to participate and where we're going, wherever that is. And hopefully it's healthy. Hopefully it's good, right? But he wants us to participate in that. But the only way we're ever going to do that is if we slow down to his pace. And that doesn't mean three miles an hour. But that is the walking pace of most people, by the way. But it did give him the ability in this passage to do something incredible. It gave him the ability to, to know who he was going to see and what the father wanted to do in those moments. It's an incredible thing. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth and he said, follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. Now, again, I'm gonna, get, I'm gonna break some things down. Small, but they're huge. Matthew's not just any man. He's a man, a Jewish man, and a tax collector. And if it's been a while since you've been in church, or it's been a while since you've been near, <laughs> near uh, you know, any of this, these details, uh, this is huge. But let me ask you a question. If we were to sit down and have coffee at whatever uh, favorite coffee spot you have, and if you don't like coffee, imagine tea or whatever you like, and I were to ask you the question, who do you hate, what would you tell me? Now, let me preface this. I get it. Some of you are like, I'm not supposed to hate anybody. I get it. I, I understand that. But let's just say you want the Holy Spirit to actually do some work in your heart, and you confess that you actually have a few people in your life you would rather not see. Not that you want them, okay, I won't finish that sentence, but that you just would rather not see. Can I just tell you, that's hate. That's a level of dislike that you need to reconcile. So if you were to tell me, who would it be? 
Okay, good. I'm glad you held on to that because I don't want to hear it. Jesus does, and maybe we can talk later. But Jesus did tell us that we need to love our enemies. But this is the point I'm making with this, this whole conversation piece. The category that Matthew fell into, the Jewish people categorically hated. I mean, not just disliked, they hated Matthew because he is a Jew and he's a tax collector. And the Romans, he's a tax collector for the Romans, by the way, and the Romans are occupying the land that God had promised them. So you have this guy, Matthew, and you have many other, we kind of see this, Zacchaeus is one, another one, who has taken a job with the other side, with the, the enemy, if you will, and he's then leveraging and taking money for them. Now, the interesting thing about tax collectors, unlike, I believe, tax collectors in our country, they were able to leverage not only the taxes that Rome wanted, but they were able to take as much money from the, their very own people as much as they wanted in order to make their, themselves profit. I mean, a nice house, a nice chariot, great clothes, you name it, they could do it. And so the level of vitriol that the Jewish people had for tax collectors who were Jewish was off the charts. It was probably even maybe more than the Romans themselves. Can you imagine? Because they were siding with the Romans. And you have to kind of go, wait a second, if Matthew is sitting in a tax collector's booth and he's, he's taking money from his very own people, causing extreme oppression and continued slavery, you have to ask the question, did Matthew even believe in Yahweh? Now, Scripture doesn't tell us this, and I don't know if any scholarship would even lead you totally to that end, but in my mind, you have to kind of go, wow, you can't, you can't do this and this and this and not add up to, you, you don't have a faith in God, Yahweh, God. It is incredible. So Jesus has to be very, very sure about what the Father has told him, right? You would have to agree there. Because he walks up, and the crazy thing is that, as I understand, the tax collector booth that probably Matthew was setting in was not like off in a corner somewhere. He didn't visit your house. He was set up in, in a crossroads of the town in order to watch goods go back and forth and around him. So then he could say, hey, did you pay your taxes on that? And not only would he say that, but he would have a Roman guard or a Roman centurion with him. And he would say, hey, and he would have help to exercise what he was excising out of you or from you. Can you imagine? So Jesus walks up to him. Now, you may not be able to imagine that because that's not necessarily the world we live in, I don't think, not here in America, but can you imagine? Jesus, you're following behind and you're one of the disciples, right? You've already been called. 
you're following Jesus. And he walks up to Matthew, and you know all this stuff because you've been, I mean, you're raised in it, you're living in it, you're swimming in it. It's a part of your world. It's a part of your religious upbringing. And he walks up to Matthew and says, hey, Matthew, follow me. (laughs) Can you imagine The ripple of conversation in the disciples, but also the ripple of conversation around the town. Because he has just called out a tax collector to be one of his followers, one of his apprentices, one of his disciples, one of his methedes. It's one thing to have a zealot. It's one thing to have Judas Iscariot even. Because he was a zealot right? I mean, it's one thing to have him in your inner circle, but a whole other thing, right? It is incredible. We're going to get to it in a moment, <laughs> but for, for Matthew to hear him and to respond in the immediacy of his call created for him no fallback. In fact, Leon Morris in his commentary says this, the fishermen might go back on their fishing, which they did, we know. But a tax collector would not be able to return to the levying of customs duties at all. His job would be filled. And even the question comes, who would hire a former tax collector anyway? Think about the implications, the ripple effect. So Matthew's immediate obedience is notable, if not off the charts, to be honest. Some of us want to, some of us in our own faith walk, which is God is gracious with us, but public, immediate, We want it more private and personal. And Jesus does this to Matthew, calls him out. Now we could go into the whole ripple of what was happening we have in other messages. What was happening in Matthew's life? Where was he doing? What was he thinking? Because everything preceded that. God was already working on Matthew before Jesus ever showed up. How many of us want to hear Jesus say to us from Scripture as followers of Jesus? If you're not a follower this morning, you're not under the same type of obedience instruction. But how many of us have seen, oh, don't do that. You know, be about this in Scripture. Or we hear from the Lord. I think we're all in that process. This last week I was prompted from some information I knew to make a call. It was early in the week, and I was in the middle of stuff. Have you ever been in the middle of stuff? You're like, I can't. Yeah, thank you for joining me on that. I, can't, I don't have the time or the space to do this right now. I eventually made the call, and I'm grateful I did, and the person was grateful that I did make the call. But what 
what I noted about myself and what I note about myself, maybe not so much in this situation, but in other situations, is that we, we tend to be in conflict of obeying Jesus when it stands in, in this place of our prominence, right? If it's going to sack our prominence in a position or we're going to lose power, we're going to give away provisions. I mean, those great, those temptations that Jesus went through are all the same things that continue to hamper us and grab us and nip at our heels when Jesus calls us to obey. The same temptations over and over and over again. And the thing that comes to my mind is that I, I want to be a person who obeys the Father as Matthew obeyed the Father immediately in everything he invites me to do. Because you know why? Because God is a life giver. That if he calls me into something, he, he desires for me to be a, a life giver too. To have life and to give life. And when I step into it, even if it's discipline, it is to bring about the greater good of my whole being. So Matthew steps up immediately and it calls the question, where are we in that process? Anything less than immediate obedience is not obedient. It's not. It's, I mean, it's disobedience. I mean, think about your children. When we ask our children to do something, and we can go about this gracious ways or harsh ways. God is very gracious with us. But we want, we want the response of our children when they're small to be immediate. We want it to be complete, without complaint, and cheerfully done. That's what our desire is. And for those of us who are followers, we may kind of go, this is what I desire for us, and I'm not going to put it on onerously to my children, but I want this out of my children because I want them to listen to the Father, God, and to obey him in that way. And we're training up the hearts of our children to be about that. But we are still in the process of wrestling that down in our own hearts. Wouldn't it be nice if people obeyed in all places and spaces as they're asked, the workplace, right? Home, world. But this is how it is to be for a follower of Jesus. Dallas Willard says this, becoming a disciple or apprentice of Jesus cannot be negotiated. Rather, becoming a disciple is a matter of giving up your life as you understand it at that point. And Matthew did all of that. He left it behind. I love the words that he uses, Matthew intentionally uses in this passage where he connects it to the paralytic that happened before it, where he got up or he arose. The connection is that there's this idea of immediate and complete change of heart and this benefit that he's getting. That, that the paralytic in one sense was dead is now alive in the same sense that Matthew, when he was sitting in the chair, was dead. But when he got up and followed Jesus, he became alive. And Matthew is connecting this to our very understanding because Matthew is writing this biography of Jesus after Jesus has was dead and arose, and he's connecting this dots for us, that when we rise immediately, we will have life and life to the full. And Matthew's life was to the full. Why do we know this? 
Verse 10, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why, do your, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Matthew's life was so full that he could do nothing less than to invite all his friends, not just a select crew of his friends, to enjoy uh, Jesus one-on-one, but also to experience the transformation in his life. And he has a meal set up for him. And it's probably not just any minor meal, by the way. We don't hear that Matthew actually, uh, like Zacchaeus, stood up and said, I will pay fourfold, but he probably did that. But he had means, and so this meal was happening. And the Pharisees, we see, come and see what's happening. They, they have this side glance. Now, I want to remind you, we talked about, I think we've talked about this before, but houses were not big. In fact, houses were, were just places where sleeping, and oftentimes it was just one common room where everybody slept in the same room. But the outside courtyard was generally for, uh, for dining, for company, for hanging out, that type of thing, if you will. And so they're eating on the outside, and it's not as if, if you're wondering, the Pharisees were at the party. They were just walking by. They happened to be walking by. I'm sure it wasn't just by happenstance. Hey, did you hear where Jesus went? He went to Matthew's house. You know that tax collector. And so they're walking by his house. And they grab the disciples. They don't ask Jesus, but isn't this the way of the evil one? They grab the disciples and began to just talk to them, like, what's he doing? You know that's wrong. Why is he doing that? And they begin to plant seeds of doubt, ideas of dissension into the minds of the disciples, of which the disciples rightly did. Like, hey, Jesus, they're out there. They're looking for you. They want you. Think about that. The evil one is a liar, and he will continue to lie to you all day and all night long, and he will try to pull you away from the truth of what you know about in Scripture about who he is and the truth of who God is. So Jesus is sharing the table with, with these outcasts, with those who are far from God. And why is he doing that? Well, and the simple and very much fits with what we believe and what we press here as our mission, it's simply that they know that they're loved, that who you have at your table, that they know that they're loved by someone and someone who knows the someone. But could it be that it's also this idea that as you entreat, as Jesus was entreating people at this table, and it wasn't even his table, but the way it's written, by the way, it's like as if Jesus was the host, that he was, he was the host. And can I just tell you that the reason he was the host wherever he went is because he knew who he was. His identity was not lost on him. That when he walked up to people, he didn't shy away because of, of their prominence. He knew who he was and he stepped into it. And so that we can do that same thing. That when we walk and talk as children of God, for his very good, that we can be about that. But he steps in into this table. Guess what he's doing? He's bringing heaven to earth in those moments. He's bringing heaven to earth. Wherever Jesus goes, heaven is there 
being brought into the world in which they lived. Isaiah 25, 6 says this, On the mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for who? All peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. The crazy thing is that this, this, this group that has been gathered around this table is to give you a perspective that the table is set not just for people who you think should be at the table, but who should and who Jesus invites to the table and who God desires at the table, those who are far from him. It's this atmosphere of the kingdom that we see in Revelation. Matthew 8 backs this up even more by Jesus' own words. He says, I say to you that many will come from the east and west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. His desire is that all people sit at one table together, that the divisions and disunity that exist in our world, whether inside the church or outside the church, be broken down, and that we become people who who see people as image bearers of God. It's a grand invitation to hospitality. The tax collectors, the sinners, the prostitutes, the fishermen, the lepers, the women, Samaritans, Roman centurions, and various other outcasts as we read scripture, Jesus says, they're they're not a stranger to me. They're welcome into my kingdom. So as we contend with our own obedience or lack thereof, we have to also ask who's sitting at our table. Who do we invite to our table? Who do we treat with the hospitality of Jesus? And again, I remind you that Jesus' table was not in his home because he didn't have a home. He didn't have a place to lay his head. Jesus' hospitality was wherever he went and he welcomed people warmly and greeted them with love and brought them in with deep compassion knowing they needed to know the love of of the Father. And yet we have this contrast that's happening in this passage of Scripture with the Pharisees. By the way, these are the Bible-believing people of the day. Uh, For those of you that are here, your fellow followers of Jesus, it's you. Now, it may not be you, but it's you. They were serious about God, yet they created a culture of exclusion. They created rules about who was in and who was out based on what they did or did not do. Now, this may be a surprising thing, is that most believe that Jesus probably would have been more closely aligned with the Pharisees of his day in terms of belief, but not in behavior. And yet, he did not live in a culture that created boundaries. He blew past them In fact, I would say this, that the table is an invitation to the kingdom and a place where barriers are eliminated. Wherever that table may exist, that it is our job as followers of Jesus to blow those barriers away, not exist within them, not exist in the ones that the world has created around us and the evil one wants to keep us divided and in dissension around. The table creates a place where boundaries are blown and destroyed. It's a beautiful scene in Matthew's home, but it's it's just a heart-wrenching tension of contrast, right? 
the Pharisees, Pharisees wanting to, to bring in their rules. And Jesus, as unconventional as he may be, disruptively moves in the right way toward people because he loves all and desires them to know the great love that he has for them. The relationship that restores with him, that restores a relationship rightly with the Father. So he finishes with this after hearing from his disciples, I think, of what the Pharisees had done. On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call the righteous, but not not to call the righteous, but the sinners. I believe that Jesus had a response that was beautifully brilliant, and I'm borrowing this from Gerald Griffin. He appeals to them on common sense. So they would say about the people that are around the table, they're unhealthy, they're sick, and Jesus doesn't contend with that. He says, you're absolutely correct that those who are sitting around the table need to know the love of the Father. That you, if you call them sick, then why don't you bring them some healing? And he brings them some healing. The Pharisees have this idea. Salvation is segregation. But Jesus brings us this idea as Jesus is salvation by association with him. The salvation is by association with him. Then he brilliantly appeals to those, the, the Pharisees, those who were uh, kind of contending with him about theological things, right? He says, so let's tackle the Bible. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, which he's chasing all the way back to that study we did just a f- few weeks ago in Hosea. And Hosea 6.6 6 says this, I, sh- I want to show you love, not, I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. You can keep the rules all day long, but if it keeps away from the very people in which needs to know that you love them and they, that I love them, then it doesn't do any good. The love's just a clanging gong, as Paul says. God, Jesus' desire is that we should love as he's loved, right? He doesn't want us to be self-satisfied on what we know, but transformed by what we do. To embrace those who are vastly different than us, who have very different lives than us, may even look different than us, and have compassion that moves us to listen to them, lean into them, love them, and allow the Holy Spirit to change them and transform them. I like the last one. Jesus appeals to his mission. He says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. That's why I've came. That's why I've come. I mean, he starts out his whole missional work after the temptation with repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. My desire is that those who want and desire the kingdom will embrace me and my way of living. So the Pharisees are caught. 
just as many of us were caught and may even be caught today. I hope not, pray not, but that's why we're here. That the kingdom of God is for those who humbly acknowledge their sin and follow Jesus. It's as simple as that. Jesus, he walks up to Matthew and he says, follow me. And Matthew follows. Again, we're not privy to the preparation of the Holy Spirit and the work that's been happening in Matthew's life. But there's a desperate need for a change, a new way of living. But the Pharisees, when presented with this demonstration of love that is so grand that it blows their minds, but it does not eliminate their barriers, they are resistant. So we have to ask ourselves as we are presented with Really, what do we do with this? What are our next steps as we listen to this? There may be a few. Some of you are like, oh, I wanna, I'm going to throw a party just like Matthew's because I have some friends, and I just, they just need to know I love them. And if I love them, then Jesus loves them. So let me encourage you in these summer months where barbecues are pretty common and opportunities to gather with friends uh, over a campfire is just a, a way to do it, that you, you do that. You invite your friends to come taste and see that the Lord is good. That you prepare with prayer. That you have those occurrences where you can share Jesus with others. That you can share what Jesus has been doing to you. Not take this word and, you know, with it. But just share, you know. So gracious. So grateful for the Lord's work in my life. And you finish the sentence. You finish it how it's finished worked how he's worked in your life this week not 10 years ago you see he's doing stuff new but i think we have to do we do have to ask this question the contrast of pharisees and matthew where we sit when we look at our world do we do we have this do we have this uh heart of uh, desire to follow jesus wherever he may lead obediently And we may think, well, I've already said yes to Jesus, but can I just tell you that Jesus himself said uh, to daily take up our cross and follow him. And this call is for us today, whether we're we're a follower or we're considering the truths of Jesus right now, is to follow him and what he's called you to do obediently and to follow him. I, I think there may be a few of us who uh, have pharisaical ways. You know, we see the rules and we look at our world through our lens and we kind of evaluate what's happening around us through this lens of, lens of critical, uh, evaluative lens that is not helpful to our neighbors and our friends and all the everybody else. We have chosen the way of segregation and we need to allow the Holy Spirit to break our hardened hearts so that we move into new ground, new territory with him and for him. So as we go into a time of prayer, I'm not sure what the Holy Spirit has prompted in your hearts, but the Holy Spirit has prompted in your hearts something because I believe he has been preparing for this very moment. So I ask that you, you linger with him. We are gonna sing. Uh, we, wanna, we wanna give you time to pray. I'm going to pray for you, but I want the Holy Spirit to lead you. The altar is open. You can pray in your seats. You can linger in your pews. But where are you today?
Has, it, has, it, has this been a resistant week? You've heard Jesus say to you to do something. Hey, give that guy 20. Nah, I got coffee I want to buy. Right? Are you looking through the lens of like, hey, I, I saw them do that, and, and you're, you're hypercritical and judgmental of their motions and movements as the Pharisee would be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for these stories in your word, Lord, that remind us of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And I think that as I, as I consider Matthew and his obedience, his immediate obedience to follow you, leaving everything behind, Father, I think there are some of us that realize that there's something we need to leave behind and not bring it into tomorrow, not even bring it into the rest of today. So, Father, for those friends and family members of mine who need to leave something behind, Father, would you give them the courage to to pray it aloud, to pray it out to, to you right now, to leave that thing behind and to press forward. It's a new, it's a habit, it's an idea, it's, it's a dis- disruptive thought about someone or something that is not healthy or even close to being loving. Friend, if that's you this morning, surrender it to Jesus. Confess that he is right and get up and follow him. For some of you this morning, this may be uh, your place. You've, you've been wondering about Jesus and you heard the, heard the words, follow me. And it's a first and a new thing for you. If that is the case, then we, we ask you to pray this prayer. It's not a simple prayer, but it is a prayer of surrender t- to him. It's on the screen if you'd like to see it, but I ask that you would read it, that you would pray it to Jesus, to the Father, as your first following of decision. Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercy, grace, and love found in and through Jesus. Save me and forgive me for my sins. I give you my life and choose to follow, love, and live for you. In Jesus' name. Father, we're grateful for this morning, the opportunity to look into your word, to be challenged once again to the call of followership in you. Matthew's bold obedience challenges us in these moments because I believe that all of us have been prompted, nudged by the Holy Spirit this week to say or to do something for you. And it would be a sacrifice of time, a sacrifice of provision, maybe a a loss of, uh, maybe chagrining a loss of power or prestige that we thought we had. We need to ask for forgiveness for something and we're like, I don't want to do that because that means I was in the wrong. But Father, I believe that you want us to, to obey you, not because you 
have a strict order, but because you want us to, to have life and life to the full and to live love in its deepest and richest places. So Father, by your Holy Spirit, continue to lead us as we sing and as we linger in these next few moments. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.